The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, the 17th chapter. Jesus said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, Increase our faith. And the Lord said, If you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. This is the Gospel of the Lord. In the holy name of Jesus, amen. A few years ago, there was an article in the Atlantic about addiction to data. It was a business article showing that there are downsides to gathering and analyzing too much data. For instance, while a survey may be really helpful to a company in making decisions, if it is annoying to the customer, it has a hidden cost. This article attracted my attention because the author used religious language to describe the way that businesses were beginning to think about data. He wrote this. An entire generation of managers has been brought up in the Church of Measurement, whose catechism is, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. That's the gospel of metrics, as he calls it. It's a pretty interesting thing to identify a dogmatic devotion to data as basically a religious phenomenon. Numbers don't lie. And measurement is a reliable way of getting to the truth. And so it makes sense that the science of recording and analyzing data would become an object of trust. You can even picture moments of religious crisis when the numbers reveal something counterintuitive, when you have to decide whether you're going to believe the data or follow your gut. But it also makes sense to describe all of this in religious terms because one of our most basic instincts is to ensure that we measure up. I bet you don't have to work very hard to think of the places in your life where measurement is really important to you. If you wear a Fitbit, or get a report card or performance reviews, or you have a stock portfolio, if you're trying to lose weight or run faster or sleep better or live longer, if you're trying to spend more time with your family or less time at work or go to church more often, if you're trying to get better at something, anything, chances are you have a way to measure it. 
and that measurement is really important to you. It can even become a stand-in for your own sense of self-worth. Now, that's not something unique to our age, an age in which more and more things become measurable. Remember the story Jesus told about the Pharisee and the tax collector. While the tax collector stood in the temple lamenting his unworthiness, the Pharisee was using him as an opportunity for comparison. I thank God that I'm not like other men, like that tax collector. Or remember the argument among the disciples as to which of them is the greatest. Jesus dispelled that argument by showing them a child and saying, He who is least among you is the one who is great. That was an important lesson for the disciples and one which that took them a long time to learn. Later, they still assumed that children were of little worth when parents were bringing their kids to Jesus. Today, the disciples are again concerned with measurement. Today, they're concerned with measuring their faith. And so they ask Jesus to give them more. Now, that's not a bad request. We pray it every Sunday, that by means of the sacrament, we would be strengthened in faith and love. It's also not a surprising request, considering that by the time we get to chapter 17 in Luke, the disciples have heard a lot of difficult things. They are to turn the other cheek and take up their cross and enter through the narrow door. And in our text alone, they heard about millstones and forgiving again and again and again. Have you ever seen a millstone? It would drop you to the bottom of the sea effortlessly, and yet, being dragged to the bottom of the sea by a millstone is a better fate than that which awaits those who bring temptations and cause believers to stumble. And how many times can you forgive? Peter thought that he was being optimistic when he asked in Matthew 18 if seven times would be enough. No, Jesus says. As often as your brother sins, rebuke him, and as often as he repents, forgive him. Up to seven times in a day, don't stop. All of this made the disciples wonder. Are they up for it? What if they're the ones who bring temptations and cause believers to stumble? After all, they're the ones tasked with preaching the gospel of the kingdom. What if they get it wrong? Or what if they couldn't forgive over and over and over again? What if someone sinned against them so grievously that they found themselves saying, I'll never forgive you for this? Maybe they didn't have enough faith. Maybe they weren't up for it. And so they asked Jesus to increase their faith. It's a bit like that remarkable story about faith in Mark chapter 9. Jesus had just come down from the Mount of Transfiguration, from that glimpse of heavenly glory with Moses and Elijah. He came down from the mountain and found his disciples struggling to cast out a demon. There was a boy with an unclean spirit, and his father had come asking for help, but the disciples were unable. The father said to Jesus, If you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. In this, his most desperate moment, he had nothing to cling to, nothing to hope in but the mercy of Jesus. He could not hope in himself. If he had been able to help his son, he certainly would have. 
And now he has discovered that there is no hope in the disciples. They are powerless against this demon. Jesus minces no words when he laments, O faithless generation, O unbelieving generation, how long am I to be with you? We should pause here for a moment to note that when we talk about faith in the church, it's not some sentimental notion. It's not the vague idea that everything's going to work out somehow. The faith that we're talking about is something real and concrete and far from sentimental. It's effective. It does things. This faith is not just believing or just believing in something, but believing Jesus, taking him at his word, trusting that he will do what he says. The poor father of that poor child and the disciples all needed to hear and believe the words of Jesus. If you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us, the man asked. If you can, Jesus asked, all things are possible for one who believes. I believe, the father cried out. Help my unbelief. What's remarkable about this story is that the father wasn't concerned about being the best believer. For this father, it's not a matter of more or less faith. It's not about believing harder or stronger or more earnestly, but really furrowing his brow or picturing success. Faith for him wasn't some commodity, something he could accumulate and have to his credit. He knew that when Jesus speaks, the options are yes and no. Amen or no thank you. Faith and unbelief. And that's true because the measure of faith is not in itself, but in its object. Faith doesn't look at itself. It doesn't ask how big or strong or fervent or reliable am I. Instead, it asks how big and strong and fervent and reliable is Jesus. Faith doesn't ask what can I do. It asks what can Jesus do. Faith doesn't ask do I measure up. It asks does Jesus measure up? You know, of course, the answer to all of those questions. And the disciples knew the answers as well. And that's why when they ask Jesus to increase their faith, he replies, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. How much faith do you need? What's the smallest thing you can imagine? Jesus takes the question into the realm of the ridiculous because really it's not about how much faith you need. The only question is, how much of Jesus do you need? The question isn't, can I cast a mulberry tree into the sea? The question is, can Jesus cast a mulberry tree into the sea? Can Jesus turn the other cheek? Can Jesus take up his cross? Can Jesus enter through the narrow door? Can Jesus save the little ones? Can Jesus forgive again and again and again? If Jesus can do it, then faith has its answer. By faith you have all of Jesus. Nothing is lacking. It is a good prayer to pray for an increase of faith, for strength in the face of temptation, for fervor in holding to the promises of God. But what you're not praying for is something to help you measure up, something in yourself to give you more confidence, because your confidence, the measure of your worth, 
is Jesus. At the end of the day, in view of everything that you accomplish by faith, that's what lets you say, I am an unworthy servant. I have only done what is my duty. Which is to say, I have only done what was given to me. That's what makes you a disciple. You have been given everything by Jesus. And so for you, there is just one thing worth measuring. And it is not your faith. It is the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of God for you in Christ Jesus. To him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, to him be glory now and forever. In the holy name of Jesus, amen.